If you've been following the news and you know that uh, yesterday um, Hamas uh, launched an attack on Israel, a surprise attack, and killed uh, hundreds of people, the conflict in that region is not new, but this has now been taken to a new level. Um, terrorism <clears throat> cannot be tolerated because people cannot live in peace when terrorism goes on. <clears throat> but unfortunately, a lot of us would, would say that this situation will probably get much worse before it gets better. But I think we need to pray this morning for Israel and pray for the entire Middle East <clears throat> that they can continue to work for peace and, and find peace because we know that peace is never a given. Pray for this situation. And, and, and we will be watching in the days ahead to see how it unfolds. Today we're finishing up a sermon series focused on Paul's letter to the Romans. We've been in Romans since about the middle of uh, August, and today I'm going to uh, bring that to a close. All good things must come to an end, right? So let's recap uh, just a little bit where we've been uh, this fall. I told you that the theme of Romans is found in chapter one, where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. For as it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. This is the premise of Paul's letter. He, he is trying to reach the Jews and the Gentiles with the gospel message. In chapter five, we talked about hope. And, and, and Katie and Mike Dickhouse, Katie spoke a number of weeks ago, and they have been living hope in our midst ever since the tragedy this spring. But Paul says this, we boast in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint. Hope is a powerful thing, and as Christians, we are always called to live in the hope of the resurrection. We've also talked a lot in this series about the human predicament, the human struggle, how we are all sinful. Uh, in Romans 7, Paul says, you know, we do the things we know we shouldn't do, and we don't do the things that we know we should do. So we are all in need of grace. Not a single one of us is perfect. We are saved by grace through faith, and we're called to spread that grace to others. And then I told you that Romans 12, 9 to 18 is a great description of what it means to live the Christian life. And last week, Jay gave a great sermon about what it means to be set free so that we can love, so we can love each other, love freely, because all of us have our stuff that we have to deal with. Life is not easy. Life is not simple. And all of us have to work through certain things. If you read Paul's letters in the New Testament, you will find that there's certain recurring themes, including grace and hope, perseverance, reconciliation, suffering, struggle, and some others as well. But there's one theme, <clears throat> there's one theme that seems to be very consistent in almost all of Paul's letters, and that theme is getting along with each other. Paul was addressing churches, many of which he had started himself. And the number one problem after he left was division and quarreling among groups. And if you look at Christianity today in the 21st century, what do we find? Often, division and quarreling among groups. Christians have always been very good at, at, at fighting with each other. 
But we've taken two very simple commandments, love God, love your neighbor. And we've fractured it into hundreds of denominations and traditions and, 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 and factions. And so I would say that far too many Christians forget Jesus's prayer the night before his crucifixion. Do you remember it? He said, I asked not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one so that the world might believe that you have sent me. Now you gotta hand it to the Presbyterians in a town like Nashville. When they, when they have factions, they, they usually end up starting two churches. So I commend them for that, right? But this was Jesus's prayer, that all would be one so that the world might believe that you've sent me. We, we have taken this and we've broken it down into so many different groups and denominations and traditions. And so when we try to witness to other people, they say, well, why, why, why would I wanna come join your family fight? Doesn't sound fun to me. And so a big problem in our culture, in the church, outside of the church, is our inability to get along with each other. I'm a fourth generation Christian church minister. Um, my grandfather was in Atlanta, first Christian. My grandfather, my, that was my great grandfather. My grandfather was in Florida, Fort Lauderdale. My dad was in Memphis for 35 years before he joined our staff here. And, and, and so the reason that I love the Christian church is because we do everything in our power to bring Christians together in a world that always tries to divide them. Think back to the first century. Even the scribes and the Pharisees were always trying to trick or trap Jesus. John 8, a woman has been caught in the act of adultery. The law at the time was clear. Adulterers were to be put to death by stoning. So the scribes and the Pharisees bring her to Jesus and they present him with this dilemma. This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says that we should stone her. What do you say? And Jesus knew what they were up to. If he said yes, she should be stoned to death, he would lose the reputation that he had already gained for being full of love, compassion, and mercy. But, but if he said, let her go, he would be accused of teaching people that it's okay to break the law of Moses. So what does he do? He takes some time to think, he writes something in the dirt. We don't know exactly what many say it might've been the various sins of the people around. But he doesn't respond quickly. He knows he's being trapped. He knows what's going on. And Jesus stands up. He looks at them and he gives a brilliant response. Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then one by one, they dropped their stones and they walked away, leaving Jesus alone with the woman. He says, woman, where, where, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. Well, neither do I condemn you. So go therefore and sin no more. You know, Jesus says, if you're perfect, if you're without sin, if you've never made a mistake, then go right ahead, stoner. But he knew nobody could do it because everybody sins and falls short. Even when we try really hard not to, we still sin and fall short. The grace and forgiveness that Jesus demonstrated to this woman is the same grace and forgiveness that God shows to all of us in our own lives. And then we're called to show it to each other. 
What about in Romans? Paul says, some of you are all worked up over what you can and can't eat. Some of you are all worked up over whether the Sabbath is on Saturday or Sunday. Some of you think you're better off than others because you're Jewish. Stop it. Knock it off. You're missing the point. In Romans 14, 19, Jay read it. He says, let us then pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Stop getting worked up over all these petty things. You're missing the bigger picture. And so many Christians today are are missing the bigger picture. Our world at large is definitely missing the bigger picture. Every day we read of war, invasions, terrorist attacks, divisions, infighting, random acts of violence, school shootings. We seem to live in an age of tribalism where it's very hard for people to get along. But Jesus prayed that all would be one so that the world might come to believe. If Christians can't figure out this, then what hope does the world have? If Christians can't learn to get along in the spirit of God's love, then then how can we be the salt and the light that Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount? What does it look like to pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding? What does that look like in your life? Let's talk about that. I read an interesting article a couple of years ago that identified the seven basic origins of conflict. General conflict. The article was answering the question, where does conflict originate? Where does it come from? And and I think that this is relevant for both groups and for individuals. And here's what it said, seven things. First, when two or more parties have differing agendas or goals, one party might get its way, the other party does not. Second, when one party has something that the other party needs or wants, but will not comply, which leads to disappointment or dissatisfaction. Third, when basic personalities create tension. You ever been around people that you just know, like we're not gonna get along. I don't have a good feeling about this person. Fourth, something significant in a relationship has changed. That's what often happens before a divorce. Things aren't as they used to be. Fifth, one person betrays the trust of another. It takes a long time to build up trust and a short time to tear it down. Sixth, one person creates conflict by saying or doing something thoughtless or irresponsible. And seventh, One person's needs in the relationship are not being met and the other person refuses to acknowledge it or to do anything about it. Those are the seven basic sources of where conflict comes from. Whether you're talking about individuals, whether you're talking about groups, whether you're talking about multiple groups, but that's an overview. So let me match these seven this morning with seven virtues that are found in scripture as to how we can get along better in life, both in the church and also outside of the church. The first one, the first virtue is compromise. The Speaker of the House got voted out this week because he worked for a compromise. Not everybody can get their way in life all the time, although some will try. As selfishness has increased in our culture, civility has decreased. You know, when I work with couples who are about to get married, I talk to them about compromise. And I say, it's not fair if it's always one person that's compromising and the other person that's always getting their way. 
Compromise means not getting everything that you want. <clears throat> compromise means sacrificing something for the sake of the relationship. And, and compromise is necessary for government, for relationships, for marriage, for business. You can't always get everything that you want. The second virtue is compassion. There needs to be more compassion and understanding in this world. What's it like to walk in the shoes of others? I'm not just talking about charity. I'm talking about the way that we treat the people closest to us. Our spouses, our children, our family members, our friends. The definition of compassion is a concern for the suffering and misfortune of others. And guess what? Everybody suffers. So there needs to be more compassion. There needs to be more grace. There needs to be more empathy. We need to learn to cut each other some slack because life is hard and people are doing the very best that they can most of the time. The third virtue is what I'm gonna call relationship building. Have you ever noticed how people typically don't demonize the people that they know well because they have a basic respect for their humanity? This is why social isolation has become a problem in our culture. People don't know each other. Many of us don't even know our neighbors. We have to build relationships in life and be intentional about that. There, there was a point back in the 1990s, and it's been written about by many different writers, where members of Congress, instead of living in Washington, D.C., they were encouraged to, to move back home and commute to Washington, D.C., and the theory behind this was you should live among the people that you represent, especially the, the congressmen. But unfortunately, here's what happened. When members of Congress moved back to their, their hometowns um, and they stopped living in the same community, when their kids stopped playing on the ball teams together, when their spouses stopped serving on the board together, when they jetted out of town as soon as Thursday was over, relationships diminished and it became much easier to demonize people of the other party because they didn't know each other. Relationship building is a big part of peace because without relationships, we fear each other. Without relationships, we tend to focus on what divides us rather than what unites us. The fourth virtue is embracing change as an inevitable part of life. Things do not stay the same in life. People change and situations change and relationships and families change and jobs change. This is normal. This is a part of life. What does it say in Ecclesiastes? For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And once we accept this reality that everything changes, then we don't have to be afraid of change. I'm not saying that all change is good or even welcome. I'm just saying that anytime things change, we can grow or we can dig our heels in and try to deny it and become miserable. And sometimes our inability to embrace change is what keeps us from experiencing peace. Conservatives can be guilty of never wanting change. Liberals can be guilty of always wanting change, no matter what. But change is a given in life. And if we can embrace it and use it to grow, we will experience more peace. The fifth virtue, and a very important one, building trust. Trust is the currency of relationships. Trust is what allows us to open up and share life together. But trust does not come easy for many people because they've been hurt before. 
They've been burned. They've been done wrong. They've been lied to. And the people who know us the best can hurt us the deepest. That's always been true. And human beings have the ability to disappoint. But we must do everything in our power to grow our trust in each other. You know, Jesus was betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter. He was let down, but it didn't stop him from loving. What did Alfred Lord Tennyson once say? He says, "'Tis better to have loved and lost than to never have loved at all." Don't let what's happened in the past keep you from trusting in the future. And one more thing, we all must learn to trust in God. Greg Jones, Belmont president, was here speaking this week, um, gave a great talk, and I asked him, what's the difference between the churches that kind of get it and the churches that don't? His, he immediately answered, a belief in God. Trusting in God is a vital part to being a Christian, but, but many Christians don't trust in God. They just want to try to control everything, but we can't. Virtue six, speak carefully. Words matter. What we say to people matters. I, I wish some of our political leaders in both parties would choose their words more carefully. In Ephesians, Paul says, let us speak the truth to our neighbors for we are members of one another. He says, let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up so that your words may give grace to those who hear. We need to choose our words carefully because our words have power. Words can build up and words can tear down. Lastly, the seventh virtue, learn to forgive. There simply is no peace, no reconciliation without forgiveness. Forgiveness is a recipe for survival. Jesus said, forgive 70 times seven. And forgiveness does not mean that, that you're okay with what happened. It doesn't mean that we've forgotten what happened. It doesn't mean that, that, that we've decided to let it go or that, we, that, we, that we're all of a sudden okay and, and, and though I really wasn't mad at you. It, it just means that we've decided to let it go and we're gonna move on. We're not gonna let it define our lives anymore what Paul says in Philippians, forgetting what lies behind, pressing forward to what lies ahead. It's a Christian virtue. It's not easy. But Paul was urging the Romans to get along with each other, to build community with each other, and to remember that forgiveness mattered and to remember Jesus's prayer for all to be one so that the world might believe. So let's close by asking ourselves this question. What's it like to experience you? What's it like to experience me? All of us can work hard on getting along with other people. Amen.